When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode, which is the conclusion of the six-part Division Capsule series, and that means it's an off-season review and season preview, and this is the Southeast. It was important for me to get this done before the start of the season, before the season preview part gets a little bit stale, and because we have two great guests, Mike Prada of SB Nation and Adi Joseph of the Sporting News. And we go all over, for those of you who listened to these before, big moves of the offseason, players we're excited to see, and then get into the season preview part and rankings and who's going to make the playoffs and everything like that. And it's a lot of fun. There's some of my favorite things to do with the whole year, especially with people who know the division as well as Mike and Adi do. And this episode is sponsored by Audible. You can go to audible.com slash try now and get a... free audiobook with your 30-day trial, so you should definitely check that out. This episode runs a little over an hour, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank both of you so much for taking the time to come on. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, I mean, this is... Pretty, di- pretty bad division. It was strange doing this one last, because, you know, I've been doing a lot of these divisions and just did the Northwest, which has a lot of optimism, and then going here, but this begins with a really basic question, which is, who got better and who got worse? I don't know that any team in the in the Southeast got better. Think I think the Orlando Magic like to think they did, and maybe in some ways they got better in the short term. But I certainly don't think the the Charlotte Hornets maybe on paper got better because of adding Michael Kidd Gilchrist. But they kind of overachieved last year. So I don't. I genuinely don't know if I would say any team in this division necessarily got better. Yeah, one way to think of it is. The Heat definitely got worse. I think we can all agree. Uh, I think Charlotte probably got worse, uh, although you can make an argument that they stayed the same. And then the other three teams are a big shrug. The Hawks probably also got worse, but who knows? Maybe Dwight Howard's defensive rebounding is an upgrade on Al Horford, and maybe Dennis Schroeder is ready to have his all-star breakout. Who knows? The Wizards, I would hope, got better uh, because last year went really poorly, but it's not like they are that much better on paper and they already have a key injury and the magic. I think it's easy to look at what they did and say, what the hell is their plan? But they probably are a better team today than they were at the end of last season. So I agree. It's sort of a a shrug. I mean, there's really only one team I think that definitely got worse and that's Miami. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the Wizards, I don't think that they necessarily got better as much as they are better than they were last year. They simply underachieved last year. And so while maybe on paper it's bringing back a pretty similar lineup to what they had last year, they should improve just because things went really poorly last year. And that shouldn't happen again. They always find a way, though. <laughs> well, but, but I also think that gets into one of the overarching parts of this that can that can matter is both the Wizards and the Magic upgraded a coach. And that isn't as much on, we like to focus on the personnel side for a good reason, but that might make the difference for Washington, though on talent they stayed about the same. Especially losing Ramon Sessions might hurt them, depending on how Trey Burke does. But for Orlando... I think their talent is a little bit better. It's it's close. It's so poorly fitting, but at least they have more of it, which is nice. But Vogel over Skiles, especially considering what ended up happening with Skiles, appears to be an upgrade that matters. Got Skiles just randomly quitting before he got fired. <laughs> We're so used to Scott Skiles driving everyone mad, and in this case, it seemed like everyone else drove Scott Skiles mad, so... I said on another podcast, they basically had the entire three-year Skiles effect in one year because they started so well, and then they stagnated, and then they faded in three parts, and it happened all in one season. So the pattern remained. Uh, but to your point, Danny, yes, Frank Vogel is an upgrade. Of course, we said Skiles was an upgrade on Jacques Vaughn as well. So we'll have to see exactly how it works out. But yeah, I mean, that the coaching will matter. At the same time, I, I don't know if it'll matter enough. It's going to be interesting to see because at least with Orlando, I don't really know what their best lineup is. And that's sort of the challenge I see in evaluating them at the same time, better talent. I think, I mean, Serge Ibaka right now is a better player than Victor Oladipo. I know Serge Ibaka had a down year last year, but he's a better player than Victor Oladipo. Uh, and Bismack Biombo is a better defensive presence than Dwayne Dedman, who is essentially is the swap right there. Will that counteract in other ways? I don't know, but Orlando got better in a lot of ways. I, I think it's not out of the question that that team does better than we think just because there's such a negative perception of them from what nobody really knows what they're doing in general. But, I mean, the talent is better and they have a better coach. It's a, usually a combination to getting to improving as a team. Yeah, I still have such a big problem with the Tobias Harris trade. And, you know, they got half a season. They got the good half of their season out of Tobias Harris. Things kind of started to fall apart starting with that trade. And when you go back and you look at it, they traded Tobias Harris for Jeff Green, which is like the dumbest thing. I don't even have anything more to say about that. Well, and it also is, is so weird because one of the flaws on the Magic is just having offensive creation, especially if Alfred Payton can't improve and. He should. You know, that's something that is reasonable to expect from him this year. And Fournier helps, but their backup point guard spot is strange, especially with the money they committed to Augustine. But there is a danger in conflating bad offseason with disappointing team, because those can be two very, very different things. Memphis is an example in the converse, where it's a team that did had a really successful offseason, but might not be that as good as some people hope. And Orlando might be the opposite of like, yeah, it made no sense, but they should be better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's definitely the case. And, you know, there's also a lot of room for inter internal development on Orlando. You mentioned Peyton. I mean, maybe Aaron Gordon really does work as a small forward. And if he does, he could really change their trajectory with, with his age. Nick Vucevic is still pretty young. Uh, Mario Hizonia didn't really give him anything last year. He could really improve them as well. Fournier is still young. So 
sometimes these teams, like even when they're built poorly, they kind of can't get out of their own way. And that, that's why I think that even though Orlando, I think is probably going to push a bottom five offense, they may have a top 10 defense and they may push for a playoff spot, even though where they go from here is sort of a big fat question mark. They also have a really nice trade chip in Vucevic. And I think if they're smart, they're not going to move him until they see, number one, how he fits on their team. And number two, who gets hurt this year? Because you know someone's getting hurt. And Vucevic could be a really valuable trade chip. I mean, the Celtics, if they miss on all their bigger ambitions, I think the Celtics would love to add Nikola Vucevic for something relatively small, like maybe one Nets pick. That might be a, a pretty good move for, for both teams if, if Biombo and Ibaka can play together. So they have some, some options to upgrade during the season if they see themselves in playoff contention or if they don't. And, the, you know, they can they can build for the future or they can can move forward. But their front office dynamic is pretty interesting, too. So it's it's a situation where we've, we've heard some murmurs that maybe Rob Hennigan's not making all the decisions anymore. And it's it's kind of unclear. And I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. But there's, there's a lot of dynamics in play in terms of how high the, the Magic's ambitions are. But my impression is playoffs this year or something's bad. There is this really weird circumstance, I've written about it, Audie's edited it, about the centers in this league, but so that, that there are a lot of teams that would love to unload an extra center they have, including possibly Washington, though they seem pretty happy with the two guys they have, and Mahimi's already <laughs> hurt. But there will be this weird thing that whenever a center gets hurt, and it will happen, there'll be like five teams that say, hey, do you want our center? Do you want do you want this guy? Do you want that guy? And they're all different, you know, depending on which guy Philly puts out there or both of them. But what is a challenge for the whole league is going to be, well, how do you evaluate these guys in overall price? And what really works in Orlando's favor is that Vucevic is young enough that you can bet on upside and has a reasonable contract. So he could end up being not perfect, but maybe the best of both worlds. Like I would rather trade for him right now than Greg Monroe. Yeah, me too. He's a better player than Greg Monroe, and he, and he has a better contract, like you said. No, absolutely. It's hard to know exactly. I mean, right now the center market looks really clogged, but again, what happens if more teams get injured and something happens? So if I'm Orlando, I'd, I'd chill. They've done enough stuff. They've, they've moved too many parts. I would let the see give this mix a chance, let it see how it plays out, and you know, even wait all season. I mean, the problem they have is just this impatience to try to do so many different things. Rush to... You got to trade Oladipo because he lost the battle with Peyton, and you got to trade him now. And this is what you need. It they need to take a take a chill pill a little bit and see where it all plays out because Vucevic could still be very valuable for them. But um, yeah, I mean Orlando is definitely the most interesting team in this division. Although they all sort of have a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, I think going back to the center market and, and Danny's brief comment, and I know we, we wanted to talk about move that intrigued us and. Uh, Man, I still don't quite understand why Washington is investing so much money into two centers who seem like they can't play together. And I'd love to hear Mike's perspective on that, but I really thought Mahindy would be a good value pickup this offseason. I don't dislike his contract. I just think Martin Gortat's still better than him, and I don't see why you would sign a guy for that much money to be your backup who can't even play with your starter at center. I think the first way to think about this is that this was the summer for for the Wizards to do something. You know, they they were in a sort of use this cap space to lose this scenario, not just because they built their whole team this way, but also the big Bradley Beal extension is on the book. So at the time they lose Duran and they miss on Al Horford, there is a shortage of 
available players to fill that that void. And again, they're they're in a use it or lose it scenario. And so I think they looked at it and they said, Marcin Gortat's 32 years old, and we don't know how many more years he has left as a top kind of center option. Mahimi is 29, is a little bit younger, and we really did lack a defensive big off the bench. And looking around at what there is available, and given the kind of use it or lose it scenario that they painted themselves into, they can't play together, but at least that gives you 48 minutes of really solid defensive center play. What makes a little less sense for what they did, I think, is not the Mahimi signing, but some of the stuff they did after that, in particular Jason. Smith, although now I guess Jason Smith is useful for them because Mahimi is injured. And so I always use this analogy of like you're at you can't you're not the grocery store and picking out different apples in the produce line or or in in the produce section or different pieces of vegetables or whatever. That's what produce is, vegetables. I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But you, you get the analogy, right? So it's not like you can just kind of pick out a better option. You can pick out the non rotten apple. You know, they're all rotten apples at the time of when they need to use this money. And it's sort of like picking the least the least rotten apple. And I think it's probably better for them to have picked the uh, Mahimi rottenish apple than maybe Ryan Anderson for even more or other players. At least Mahimi does fill a little bit of a need. And as well as Mahimi, I don't think he's necessarily a more than a 30-minute player because he still has foul trouble a lot. He's probably a little bit better in a Nene style like kind of bench role. You didn't know what you were getting from Nene. Mahimi was presumably more reliable, although now he's injured, so perhaps not. So I think that move you could argue is defensible. I think it's sort of some of the stuff they did after that, taking Jason Smith's money and they could have used it on a wing help that really would have helped them. Uh, I'm not sure that makes as much sense, but you know, it's sort of they were boxed into a corner a little bit and of the available options, I think there are worse than signing Mahimi to back up Gortek. Because, you know, how many more years is Gortek going to be a quality starting center? You know, maybe this is the last year. And then I love Gortat. I think that uh, I think maybe part of my bias is that I just think Marcin Gortat is kind of underrated and maybe not as because he signed a five year deal. Other teams and, and you kind of got the sense that Wall likes playing with him and and he likes being in D.C., so other teams aren't lusting after him, whereas so many centers hit the market and they all got overrated. Gortat is is extremely good, and they are much better with him on the court. And so if you're in a scenario where you're trying to balance out the minutes, I think Gortat's still like a 28-minute-a-game guy. And now you you just paid a lot of money for 20 minutes from, from Mahindi. That, that's, I guess, where I see it. But I do understand your point of view, and I think this free agency class – was way worse than the amount of money needed to be spent. That is definitely true. Yeah, I I wrote a series of pieces basically on that premise, but the Wizards overwhelmingly succeeded in one particular way, which was that with their biggest contract of the summer, it's not a bad deal. It's not one that will age poorly unless he gets hurt. You know, Mahimi is is a talented player. I don't know. I mean, that's the question. (laughs) He might. Uh, It's not off to a great start. Uh, But yeah, Gortat is a good player. I agree. Uh, I think some of the on-off numbers that are illustrated have been because they've never had a good backup for him that has played consistently and so well yeah when he's Nene, out Nene was good but he was hurt a lot so he was hurt a lot and when Nene was out I mean they were playing barely replacement level players and so they can now if Mahimi's healthy they can sort of replicate a little bit of what Toronto had where you've got Valanchunas as the starter and the top offensive threat but you now have the flexibility assuming Gortat is cool with it, which is a big assumption. You can end games with a defensive lineup. And so I think there's some value of, again, 48 minutes of good rim protection. But now Mahimi's out, so maybe he'll be Wally Pitt a little bit by smaller options. 
Yeah, the big contract that I thought Danny was referring to was Bradley Beal, but... Uh, um, that's a little man. bit of a different thing because of match rights and everything else. We just Bradley Beal's tough, and I don't know what to say, and I wrote the day they signed him that it's, it's on him. It's on Bradley Beal. He has to make himself worth that because the truth is he's not, he has not been close to worth a max deal, and so... Now, now it's on him to take that potential and be something more than Eric Gordon. Well, I mean, some of it, to some degree, may not be up to him if he's not healthy yeah. enough to right. play. Oh, yeah, that's sort sure. of That's sort of one of the things. It, I think it's worth keeping in mind still, though, that he is still very young. He was only 22 last year. And so, someone like C.J. McCollum has fewer years of experience in the league. But McCollum, and I'm just checking this because McCollum was already 24 last year. So he was a full two years older than Bradley Beal. There's still time, I think, for Beal to capitalize on his potential. Uh, He's also, I think, growing into his body a little bit. I like a little bit of what I've seen from the preseason. I do think, to some degree, he needs to... He has a little bit of a tunnel vision mentality with some of the stuff he's doing. He has to accept some of the things he doesn't do well. But I still think there is a chance that he could blossom into a borderline all-star player. He definitely has not done it to this point in his career, but we have seen enough flashes and he's young enough that I think it's a gamble they have to take. And as gamble, that still has a decent chance of turning up the right side of the ledger. But of course the injuries complicate matters. Yeah. I've always liked Bradley Beal. And uh, I think the big thing that gets me is here's a guy who in high school and in college could rebound a little bit, could help distribute. And over the last, especially last season, he did literally nothing to help his team other than shoot and score and didn't even do that at quite the levels that I think they were hoping. So he needs to start embracing the complete game. And I, he has the talent to, and I, I like Bradley Peel. I love the draft pick. I've praised, I've written several articles praising him. I think that he and Wall should have a lot more chemistry than they have shown so far. It's just injuries plus... I blame Randy Whitman a lot, and I think that you're going to see him kind of come out of a shell with Scott Brooks. But that doesn't mean there's still the issue of right now, his career looks a little too similar to Eric Gordon's to be comfortable. Yeah, Beal's in a, in a strange place because they have John Wall to kind of be the alpha and the omega of the offense, but any team needs solid collaborators around that. But Audie brings up an important point, which is that shooting guards in particular at this point are bring so much surplus value when they can do things beyond the basic. And so, you know, you can think about somebody like Danny Green, who is a great defender and then theoretically can hit open shots, not always. Or, you know, lots of different ways. Like, there are lots of different kinds of twos. And what Beal needs to do is he needs to find that lane. And one of the ideas that they kind of fiddled with with him was maybe being a primary ball handler on the second unit. They Maybe they'll try that a little bit again. Trey Burke can play off ball if he wants to. And and so how they how they reconcile what he is and what he can be will be really important because now that they're functionally capped out, the Wizards' improvement will have to be almost exclusively internal improvement. Yeah, good luck with that. Let's see how that goes. The other thing to keep in mind, this may also to some degree not be up to Bradley Beal. Some of this is on John Wall as well. Mike Sykes wrote this really nicely at Bulls Forever, and it's a good point. When Wall doesn't have the ball, he has a tendency to drift and not be much of a threat to any at all. He, he obviously is an improving shooter, but 
He didn't really do a lot of cutting last year, and I think his man sort of cheated off him a lot when he didn't have it. And so if you're going to tease out more of the complete game from Bradley Beal where he's not just catching and shooting off what Wall is doing, he needs more space, and he needs uh, to not have that second defender cheating over. So I think Wall has to do a little bit if he's – the kind of superstar level player that he is, he has to do a little bit more to help facilitate Beal's whole game development. And that involves more cutting, more willingness to kind of spot up and shoot those open threes, make himself a threat when he doesn't have it. Because what happens to them sometimes is that Wall is such an incredible playmaker with the ball that you kind of forget all the other things that everybody else can do. And that some of that is on Wall as well. You know, Beal is capable and he has to have the right conditions for it. Let me ask you, Mike. I mean, I hate, I hate bringing a coach's past teams into it, but do you think that Scott Brooks did a good job getting Russell Westbrook into that that role? It's a little bit of a, a different challenge, I think, because there was no... You know, Durant is such a good catch-and-shoot player, but I think what happened over time after Brooks left was they tilted more of the offense toward Westbrook, so I'm not sure that Brooks really did a great job of that. To me, this is goes a little bit beyond coaching. This is kind of... This has got to be something that Wall owns. He has to just... Yeah. A lot of it is is just when he gives the ball up. And I think last year he was playing through injury. I don't know if he had all the energy to do some of this stuff. And we'll see if that's the case. But he just has to make be more active. And it, it's not something that comes down to a certain set or whatever. And it, I don't think Scott Brooks is going to design this like amazing, super cool-looking set or alignment that's going to make it easier for Brad Beal. It's got to be on John Wall to fix this problem to some degree in terms of his ability to play off the ball. And I think he will. I think last year was a year where he wasn't healthy. But if he can do that, that'll help Beal kind of be a better player. Because otherwise, you sort of are left with Beal as sort of a one-dimensional player because so much of the offense funnels through someone else. And that limits what he can do. And when he does get his chances, he's he's a little more anxious, dribbling around, not really doing anything productive. So I'm not sure this is a coaching thing. I think this is kind of on both players. Well said. Before we move on to the rest of the conversation about the Southeast, a quick word from our sponsor, Audible. The other move that we have to talk about, and there, there's a third one that we can discuss that, that ties in with another question, is the Serge Ibaka trade. And so what was weird to me about that deal is that there were these murmurs that were legitimate that the Thunder were looking to trade Serge Ibaka. But the way that it happened and the way that it got announced was just dumbfounding to me. Oh, what do you mean? In what sense? How much they gave up, the team that gave up so much for him. I, I mean, I was oh, thinking... The ma- oh, you mean like just how much the Magic traded yeah, for him? Yeah, how much the Magic traded for him and that it was the Magic. You know, So like Serge Ibaka, there was this idea that had been festering in my head for a long time about, oh, he'd make a lot of sense on the Raptors. And so you think about it because because with the Raptors he can be kind of he can fit in with their offense, be a nice little weak side defender next to Valanciunas, especially because we all knew they were losing Biombo. And so when you're when you kind of the price was a little bit too steep for Toronto to presumably play unless unless Presti really liked somebody like Terrence Ross. But to give up you know Oladipo, a lottery pick, and Ilyasova who might start for OKC, it doesn't look like he's going to for a rental, a straight rental was shocking well let me ask you a question what do you think Serge Ibaka is worth I can answer that I think uh as a rental given that he's coming off of three straight seasons of quasi decline I don't think that he was worth that that all that much Uh, not not for a team that has that has such a huge risk of just losing him I think that he would have been 
I, I said this at the time. I think he would have been worth the Oladipo Ilyasova package without throwing in the first rounder. And that was what surprised me. Like, I, I, if you had told me Oladipo and Ilyasova for Ibaka, I would have said that's a relatively fair trade. But I'm not even sure I agree with your earlier point that, you know, in 2016 17, a season that's coming up, is Serge Ibaka going to for sure be better than Victor Oladipo? I don't know. Oladipo's been improving every single season on a pretty steady incline. And uh, I think the, uh, the other factor is when you factor in fit and then you factor in future, it's, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around uh, how much they gave up for him. I really do think that take out the first rounder and you have a much closer to fair trade. All right, let, let me devil's advocate this a little bit. Do you remember what we were saying about the Nick Batum trade last year? I know what why, I was saying. Why, why, why are the Hornets giving up all that for a rental, and they're giving up a Noah Vonley so quickly? It's not exactly the same, but Batum was 27 coming into this year, and Ibaka is quote-unquote 26 <laughs> or 27 this year. Let's assume that at face value. Why, can't, why, why does this have to be a rental? Why can't this be a trade for the inside track to sign Ibaka? And I agree that his numbers are declining a little bit, but I, I also believe that his role has changed in the Thunder's system and that is why his numbers declined to a large degree you know he played a lot less center with Steven Adams's emergence and I think he sacrificed a lot of his game sort of playing out in the perimeter and not being near the basket nearly as much to the point to help the Thunder thrive and I think that was really underrated and something that he didn't get enough credit for I, I now mean, he's not he's not the same explosive athlete that he was in the past but I see no reason why he can't still be a pretty solid player for a while. And Orlando is in a stage where you say Oladipo has steadily improved. I'm not sure I've seen amazing improvement from him. Now he's young. He still could improve, but I, I'm not sure I see this like great upward trajectory and you're going to have to pay him nearly as much as you're going to have to pay Ibaka anyway. And what makes less sense, I think with, with Orlando is sort of the sequence of moves after Ibaka, but I think there is a world where Ibaka fills a very important need, kind of protecting Vucevic, protecting some other players, spacing the floor for a team that really has no shooting at this point, and that's going to be important. Someone who doesn't need the ball in his hands to be a useful player on a team that has a lot of guys that need that sort of the, the ball a lot. And you have the inside track to keep him, and unless he really is like 35 years old or whatever they say, I see no reason why he can't be a useful player for a while, and he affects winning in, a, in more of a way than Oladipo does right now. So, again, that's devil's advocate. I agree it was a steep price, but I, I think there's an argument that just trading for Serge Ibaka and getting him may actually help the Magic, given where that franchise is. Yeah, we've talked about the Magic a lot, but I do want to make two counterpoints. Um, the first is, I literally asked Frank Vogel how he plans to use Ibaka, and his plan is to use Ibaka basically like the Thunder did, to use him as a floor spacer, to keep him out on the perimeter, to use his defensive versatility on small ball fours. Those are things that are going to keep him from doing the things that he does best. And I think the team that could have valued him the most is the team that would have played him at center. So that's one thing that I didn't like about the Biombo signing, which I thought was okay from a money perspective. I, I think Biombo has some untapped potential, but I just think Ibaka is a center. The second part is, as far as Oladipo's improvement, I mean, every single year the guy gets better across the board in every statistic. I tweeted about this, and Danny said that no one thinks anything bad of him, and I kind of disagree. I, I, I mean, Oladipo has improved in every statistic that exists. 
basically every year, every analytical statistic, every catch-all statistic. He's also had strong second half. He's coming off a strong second half. His shooting has improved a lot, particularly catch and shoot. I think he's he's a much better player than people realize. Uh, I don't think I don't know that he's necessarily quite a top ten shooting guard, but he's close, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he became one this year. Maybe I'm not as high on him as you are. I guess we'll see. But so the one part of the Orlando thing that has been so weird is that a front court combination of Ibaka, Aaron Gordon, and either of their other centers would work out relatively well. So you have, you know, you can give each of them 30 minutes or thereabouts, and each of those combinations, each of the three combos, works well. You know, so if it's Gordon and Gordon and Biombo, sure. Ibaka, Biombo, sure. Gordon, Ibaka, probably the best of those three long-term. But they added a fourth guy, which pushes everybody around. And with Ibaka's age being this strange question mark, the pressure were there that's different than Batum, first of all, Batum took less than his maximum, which is something we could talk about, we don't have to, is that Ibaka is going to have a higher maximum and could end up being really kind of dangerous on the backside of that. And Orlando is a team that isn't peaking early. So if you want to fit him into the way that this is going to go, Aaron Gordon's probably going to be better two, three years from now than he, that's probably going to be about as, as well as he'll do as a member of the Magic, is more in that range. Peyton, if he's a part of that calculus, probably about the same. Hazonia, probably about the same. And so you don't have to time everybody the same. That's not a requirement. And you can try to, you know, keep it more of a plateau if you can get to a tolerable level, like a level you're happy with. But there is a danger to it, especially when he's going to be super expensive. So you also have the risk of him leaving because Ibaka is going to have some crazy good suitors because the big man market next year is just bad because the best players are going to be restricted free agents and aren't going anywhere. You know, Steven Adams, Rudy Gobert, maybe, maybe Nerlens ends up somewhere where he has a little bit of wiggle. But outside of that, it's going to be Ibaka. So he's going to get maxed and he's probably going to get maxed by a team that has a future. So it will be a challenge for them to deal with it. But at the same time, you know, like they could, it could end up working out. So I'm the, oh, and the one other small thing is, well, they did give up a late lottery pick. The late lottery in this draft didn't seem to be that good. Both that, I thought that at the time and thought even more after Summer League, you know, somebody's going to bust out from that group. But it wasn't like they gave up a late lottery pick in a year, like maybe even the reports about 2017, where it's deeper and you can maybe get a high rotation player from that. We don't know what Sabonis is going to be, but that might be a problem. Yeah, all the things you said, though, about Ibaka's future free agency, well, it's going to be a shallow market for his position, and he's going to cost a lot of money, and could have said some of the same things about Batum last year. Wow, it's a shallow wing market. These great options are going to stay, and you know, maybe he's going to cost a lot of money and whatever. And and the reason I make the comparison is that both players I see uh, as the kind of players that help make everybody else around them better just by their uniqueness for the game. So Batum and Adi, you can speak to this because you follow the Hornets very closely. Batum is the kind of player that his combination of some playmaking, good shooting, but also gives him some motion off the ball makes Kemba Walker's life so much easier, just so much less for him to worry about. And it's not anything Batum is necessarily doing. It's just the combination of versatile skills and the capability to do all those things. But also not to do any of those things is is very important, and it really helped Charlotte get a lot better. The, I see the same sort of effect you may see from Ibaka as well, just his unique ability to 
collection of skills will just make it easier for Aaron Gordon to do certain things and for Alfred Payton to do certain things and for Vucevic to do certain things. So it was a heavy price, and we'll see if it works out. But I, I just think that there are a lot of parallels to that situation, and so I could see it working out in a similar way. It would not surprise me. And we can stop talking about the Magic because <laughs> yeah, is we, we, we certainly can. But there is, one, there is one small point that there's the strange duality that there are two guys who everybody expected to get max contracts who willingly took less to return to their teams. Both are French guys in this division. Fournier took what he could have gotten an offer sheet. Doesn't seem like it would have been a problem to get that offer sheet. Same thing Chris Middleton did where he signed for a little bit less and Batum did that. And I never expect that, but it always happens. So Ibaka is certainly a possibility, especially if this season goes well, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's a possibility he stays. We will see. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about the Hawks? Because I have no idea what they're doing. That actually ties in with the next question because that will be my answer. So I'll answer that as part of it. So the next question, and I guess I'll ask it and then answer it myself, is who is the best newcomer to this team? And there are a series of worthwhile options in this division. As weird as it is and as much as everybody got worse, some teams got some good new players. But Dwight Howard gives the Hawks a very different dimension than Horford did. It's not necessarily better, but he can be a major difference maker defensively. And Atlanta's fatal flaw, as it were, last year, beyond not having like a, you know, that real star player in the traditional sense of like a go-to guy in crunch time, as much as I think we all love Paul Millsap. And Howard gives them a chance to really have an identity on on the boards. And for whatever reason, despite having two talented bigs, that they just didn't have great defensive rebounders. And Dwight is most certainly that for whatever time he can be on the floor. I like Dwight. I've always liked Dwight as a player, not not as much as a person, but as a player, I've always liked Dwight. I thought he gets unfairly criticized at a level that probably no other player in the NBA does. I think he fits pretty well next to Paul Millsap. I don't think he's as good as Al Horford, and that was the decision they had to make. Um, I get that Kent Bazemore's contract situation, which I don't know why Mike Budenholzer set himself up for back-to-back years with dealing with players who he didn't have bird rights on, but I get that that made things complicated. Um, The bigger question is, did the Hawks make themselves better as a team in order to have a worse center? I don't think the answer is yes. I think they, you know, if one of these two rookies, and I think we're probably going to skip the rookie part of this conversation because none of these teams have rookies, <laughs> but the two rookies on the Hawks, who are the only two first-rounders in this division, are both wing players, and they're going to need one of those guys to be ready now, DeAndre Bembry or Tarian Prince, because otherwise they didn't get better. They got rid of Jeff Teague, which means that they now have full onus of offensive responsibility on Dennis Schroeder, who had a bad second half. A great first half, a much worse second half. They're all, they're also relying on Dwight Howard's back. And even if Dwight is somehow a little better than, than Al Horford when he is healthy, how can you count on that guy's health? And I, I like Dwight. I just, I, it's, it's hard for me to say that the Hawks got better. It's a big question mark for me because I don't know how they're going to play because you couldn't script, I think, two stylistically different centers in the league than Al Horford and and Dwight Howard. And for better or worse, they define how a team plays. So Atlanta, under Coach Bud, they spread the floor, had all these shooters, but also they had a very hyper-aggressive defense with a lot of trapping and rotating in. You know, part of the reason they had a bad defensive rebounding uh, numbers is that when you trap and rotate, it can you 
can be hard to find your man on the glass a little bit, and that has an effect. So they're going to have to play a totally different style on both ends of the floor. And Bud has been around Pop a long time, but we have no idea if that's the kind of team he has the sort of adaptability to change the team's style of play because Dwight Howard ain't jumping out, you know, 20 feet from the basket to trap a pick and roll at this stage. It's, it's not happening. So that's, they cannot play the same style of defense and Dwight cannot shoot from outside of 10 feet. So they're not playing the same style of offense. And so all the things that he does well, defensive rebounding and in theory, rolling to the basket and all of that and rim protection in theory it requires the Hawks to play in a totally different way. And I just don't know how that's going to work. Like maybe that's a really good thing for them and maybe they can adapt, but maybe they are sort of, they've lost too much of a core of what they are. And so I, I just have no idea. That's the team that I'm most confused about heading into the season. And it should be noted that while they were a very poor defensive rebounding team, they were an awesome defense. Absolutely. They were the best yeah. defense. They were the best defense in the league in terms of defensive rating after the Ulster break. Yeah. It was a worthy trade off, but they're they're going to have to take that entire style that got them that much success and throw it in the trash and try something different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine that they're going to play the same style of play defensively this year with Dwight Howard. There is a larger scale question with the Hawks that has also having the same coach as your head decision maker in terms of personnel might have also shifted this, which is they had this super strange dynamic where. Basically, their entire team was going to be free agents in 2017. And so that was even true with Jeff Teague before they traded him. Basically, the center spot was the only thing that was outside of that. And my thought on it was almost always, well, you kind of have to play it by ear because you you don't know who's going to stay. And they're almost all unrestricted free agents. Corver, Millsap, you know, just a lot of those guys. And what Atlanta did this summer is they have enough flexibility where they can make certain things work, but they have a couple now kind of like, if you want to call them cornerstones, but you could also call them anchors that are going to constrain the way that this works because a Dwight Howard team is going to play a certain way. Mike illustrated this well before. And Bazemore to a degree has that as well, because if you want any secondary creation, you're probably going to want that out of your other swingman. So small forward shooting guard, however you're going to do that. And so they have all of that, and then they have this other massive question mark on top of everything, which is, what the heck is happening with Dennis Schroeder? Yep. And is Kyle Korver still good? I mean, Kyle Korver was pretty mediocre last season. They've got a lot of question marks to answer um, at every position except awesome as hell Paul Millsap, who was so awesome, and I love Paul Millsap. And he had, in my opinion, he was the second best player in the Eastern Conference, and I would be remiss not to say that while we talk about the Hawks. Yeah, he, he's great. Of course, he's also a free agent after the year, as he Danny is. said. And we'll see how that works out. Yeah, it's well, a sort I'm sure of a, the an trade, odd I'm situation. I'm sure the trade rumors sat well with him. I just thought we needed to shout out Paul Millsap. Oh, absolutely. Plus, <laughs> although he is back, he had off. He is coming off some knee trouble. Mm-hmm. So yep. that's another situation to watch. Yeah, I don't quite know like where they're going. I think they're sort of stuck in one of those never rebuild markets. So they kind of are trying to do two things at once. And it's led to this team that, frankly, this will really test how good a coach Mike Budenholzer is because he's going to have to change how they play in order for them to succeed. It will be a really strong test to find out, is he just – uh, one system coach or is he the kind of coach that can just scratch together whatever is needed based on whatever his personnel is is there and I mean that's the test really because they could be a really good team I mean they could be 
a great defensive rebounding team. They could use Dwight's rim rolling to really juice up that offense. I think what happened last year is a lot of teams started to drop back and just concede certain three-pointers, knowing that there was no real threat going to the basket. And a lot of the shots they took were out of rhythm. Uh, They kind of copied a lot of methods from the playoffs last year. In theory, if Dwight is rolling down the rim, that solves that problem. And Schroeder as well, in theory, if he's attacking the basket, he's a lot more direct at that than Teague is. So it could all work really well. I just don't really know. It's, it's It's a tough question. And then you don't really know where that team is going after this year. And a lot of it is out of their control. You know, they they will have the ability to make the decision on Truder, but Millsap and Corver and all that are going to have to fit in. And also, Torian Prince and Bembry are intriguing players in terms of their talent and skill set. I, I, one of the things I like about Bembry, and we won't do a real rookie segment, but I will say that my rookie is Bembry, and the reason why is because he showed a little bit of capability in terms of getting things going for himself and others in Summer League. And teams need that from positions other than the one. And so anybody who can do that, whether it's starting level or backup level, at a reasonable kind of level of production, is a, is an asset to their team. And we will see more of that in the next three to four years because, you know, it's just teams are getting better at singling out, you know, like taking away one option. And so having somebody else who can run a pick and roll or something even that basic can be a big help. I agree. I think um, if you guys are good... I'd like to move on to my outside-the-box pick for best newcomer. Okay. Which, And I don't think it's going to surprise you, but my outside-the-box pick for best newcomer is Michael Kidd-Gilchrist because I've said for a, since I moved to Charlotte a year and a half ago, I think he's the best player on the Hornets. And he played seven games last year, and they looked awesome, and they actually looked different in their awesomeness with him. And it looked like a much more sustainable type of play that they, that they had with Michael Kidd-Gilchrist on the court, where they had three players who were capable of initiating the offense at any time, full switchability uh, across the 2-3-4. He's their best rebounder and their best shot blocker and their best steals guy um, all in one. So in a lot of ways, like I, I really do believe adding 75 extra games of Michael Kidd-Gilchrist is going to be the, the biggest newcomer on this in this uh, division. Are they going to be able to score if they're playing Kid Gilchrist and Roy Hibbert at the same time? I mean, that's that's what I worry about. Yeah, I mean, I well, so the first thing is I am a little surprised by how quickly they gave up the starting job. Essentially, it seems like to Roy Hibbert. Cody Zeller had a really underrated year last year because no statistic, you know, no none of the traditional statistics really reflected Cody Zeller being good. Um, frankly, and he was, he, he, he's a really good role guy who is extremely fast for a big man. One of the fastest big men in the league. And I don't want to say athletic, but he has that going for him. And they're going to see that. I think I wouldn't be surprised if Cody Zeller was back in the starting lineup relatively soon. Steve Clifford has emphasized this is not as good an offensive team as it was last year. And I don't really see that other than the change from Al Jefferson to, to Roy Hibbert. But Cody Cody was a very good offensive player to have on the court. Their offense was a lot better with him on the court than it was without. So Losing wins a lot. It does. It does. Sessions can do some of those things offensively. Defensively, that's, that's I think, a, a perhaps bigger issue. But um, it'll be... I think that the Hornets will take one step back and one step forward because they're not going to get career seasons out of every single guy this year. That's just impossible. But I think adding Michael Kidd-Gilchrist gives them so much more dynamicism 
in so many different ways that they're going to be better. And if you look, they were mad. I mean, I, it's his sample size was so small, but they were so good when he played those seven games. They played in, in such a way that was a lot more sustainable than relying on Marvin Williams to be a 40% three-point shooter, which is what they did for most of the season. So that's why I look forward to, to seeing what he can do, if assuming he can stay healthy, which is a pretty massive assumption. So Cody Zeller's injured now, right? I mean, that's also yes. that's a lingering yes. problem as well. So what if he's not fully healthy? That That's a concern. I also just worry that teams will figure out ways to stop uh, that some of the things that Charlotte does well offensively, more switching, uh, make it more difficult, and, and dare Marvin Williams to beat switches even more than he did last year and use Kate Gilchrist's man to sort of fill in some gaps to prevent Batum's off-ball motion from working. The the whip-around nature of their offense was so profound last year, and I, I wonder if it will remain the same. At the same time, they should be even better defensively. They should be, they could be a top-five defense. So, I sort of agree they're kind of back where they were, where we started, but, I mean, I think there's a chance that their offense takes quite a tumble. It's definitely a possibility. It's, it's something you don't want to ever discuss with a guy as young as he is, but, I mean, Kemba took massive strides last season and it doesn't feel like a fluke when a 25 year old takes massive strides but maybe it is and that's a possibility that's been entertained by literally no one in this town um (laughs) no one is suggesting that Kemba Walker might take another take a step backward and uh as you know with John Wall John Wall took steps forward year after year and then last season things happen and they can't afford that they need Kemba to be back on at least as good as he was last year which was Really good, um, very efficient season out of Kemba Walker. They need at least that, um, if not an, another step forward in his development. Because I mean, Marvin in particular stands out. His his numbers were way above where they had been in his career. Batum's were kind of. It was an interesting year for Batum. He had obviously a massive effect on the team. He also shot. He had some really bad shooting nights, and he shot forty two percent for the season when he had been up around 45% for most of his better years in in, uh, in Portland. So there's a lot of things that can go in different directions here. And I think that they're kind of counting on Michael Kidd Gilchrist to be a straight plus, but he might, like you said, with especially combined with Hibbert, he might be a plus minus because the offense takes a small step back. I tend to think he's better on offense than he gets credit for. So I guess my optimism stems from that. One thing while we're talking about the Hornets, it, I, I didn't include it in the moves because there were so many bigger things, but I guess maybe maybe Audie's the better one to answer this. Was there a more surprising small transaction this summer than the Hornets giving up a first-round pick for Marco Bellinelli? That didn't surprise me. That's a straight-up Michael Jordan, Rich Joe, Steve Clifford move right there. They wanted him last year, they didn't get him, so now they got him. But I mean, it seemed like the Kings would have gotten, would have given him up for a lot less than that. Maybe they played a little bit of hardball, yeah. knowing Charlotte wanted him. Yeah, I, they just didn't care about. I mean, they don't care about a, the twenty-first pick or whatever it was. Um, they just didn't. They really didn't care about it. You could tell from literally from body language at times when Rich Show was talking before the draft about what he was going to do with his draft pick. He was like kind of disinterested in the draft. And it was a situation where they didn't feel like a low, a low first rounder would help them, and they want to win now. They don't. They don't care that they're not building to the future. They have actually a decent number of young players, a decent number of guys who are twenty six and younger, and they weren't interested in adding a player for the future. So they're trying to win now. I don't know that Marco Bellinelli helps that. By the way, I should add. 
<laughs> so, uh, any other off-season stuff before we move on to the season preview? Anything else somebody's nagging on, nagging in their brain that we need to discuss? We haven't talked about Miami yet. I mean, they had a pretty eventful off-season. Uh, is there really much to say that hasn't been said there? Well, I guess one I'll ask, we, we could talk about the three of us, is would you have matched on Tyler Johnson's contract? I Probably, yeah. I, I just... I don't think you can count on being a free agent destination in the future, and he's still pretty young and and tradable. And you know, I, I probably would have would have done matched on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, tradable is tough with him because the the way the contract works. But yeah, it's true. Um, I just don't know what else they have. <laughs> I, just, I just if they didn't match, that team is is weird. That's, that's why. I'm, I mean, they're going to rely on Goran Dragic. Maybe maybe that's part of the pre the, the the preview aspect, but I mean they're going to rely on Gor- maybe Goran Dragic is the best newcomer, real Goran Dragic, <laughs> you know, um, maybe twenty points per game, one half a season that we saw from the Suns when when Eric Bledsoe was hurt, maybe that version of Goran Dragic comes alive and he's the best newcomer in the league <laughs> because that's that's the Heat's bottom line right now. I mean the better question is like would you have I guess like, would you match on Wade? I mean, are we just assuming that like this is this more about nitty gritty stuff, and we're not talking about sort of the Wade situation we, playing we, we out? Can talk, we could talk about the Wade situation. I mean, so they were. I mean, so if he had taken that exact same contract, so it would have been the one plus one. Then you're, you're sitting yourself, you're setting yourself up for that trap again next summer when it might actually matter a little bit. But if theoretically he would have accepted those exact terms, yeah, I would have taken him with that. But I would not have given him like a, a the reported stuff was that he wanted like a three year deal or something like that, just because he's going to fall off at some point. And Miami is, as we're kind of seeing with the sad news with Chris Bosh, is like they're in the they're in the ready to transition. And in this year and maybe next year, Wade is a little bit too good to allow them to retool. And not good enough to propel them to much beyond that. And so in those circumstances, it's a little bit better to cut early. But there is the whole personality dynamic and him being such a big part of the history of that franchise. I think if I were in Pat Riley's shoes and Chris Bosch's health hadn't been a question mark, I'd have offered Wade like 515, 5, 575. I mean, 15 million a year. For I was going to say 515. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, I would like I'd to have offer to Wade Wade $1 to play for my team. <laughs> so I'd have, offered, I'd have offered him like 15 million a year for five years and just said, let's just end this. Let's never have to renegotiate a contract ever again, Dwayne. Let's lock you up to be our career guy. But because of Chris Bosch's contract uh, health situation, it changes everything for them, and that's a really rough point. And uh, Dwayne Wade would not be happy right now with how they've treated Chris Bosh. Dwayne Wade in Chicago is not happy with how they've treated Chris Bosh. So, you know, Pat Riley knew that was coming, that there was going to be some comeuppance on the on the Chris Bosh situation, and, and I think that had to play a role in how he treated Wade because doing what they did to Chris Bosh, which is its own thing, and there's a lot of opinions on that, I think, but doing what they did to Chris Bosh would not have flown well with Dwayne Wade. And that's, that's a, a factor that he had to know when he was deciding what to do with Dwayne Wade. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a tough one. We will see the effect of the personality issues uh, in the coming years, because Miami is going to use free agency to try to retool. And we will find out if that market and that and Riley and anything has any sort of pull after how this all went down. So it's tough. It's sort of a we'll see scenario. And you make a good point that the Chris Bosch situation complicates matters, but I'm not quite sure. I, the other factor too, is like, 
they took care of Whiteside right away, and that's another one of those. Yeah, basketball wise, is that a, that's a good move, but you have to wonder how it, it looks to someone like Dwayne. So it, it's going to be a real a real test to see kind of how that that plays out. But I mean, man, I, it's hard to believe that he's gone. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it does tie in to a degree with Tyler Johnson because you have these two players in him and Josh Richardson who are both very good as complementary guys, and complementary guys are getting overpaid in the league. Harrison Barnes is another example of this, of a guy who is very good at what he does but can't be the best player or even the second best player on your team. And Come on, Danny. Let out the hate. If the hate's in your heart, let it out. The, there's, that, that is not the hate for Harrison Barnes. Saying Harrison Barnes is not the best or second best player on a good team is a compliment to Harrison Barnes. And so, to some you degree. really mean he can't even be the fourth best. Come on. But but so so you have this issue when all these guys hit free agency and they, and they will throughout the you know in the near future of really how you want to shake that out and. At this point, you know, if you're balancing it out, I think his contract was about 470. That's about 15 million a year. No, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, you know, that's all right. It's it's not great. It's not bad. The structure of it is might end up being part of what changes what changes the arenas rule is that I don't know if that's better for Miami because basically it puts them on a one-year track that they have to throw a lot of eggs in the 2017 basket when maybe it would have been better to tilt it a year or two beyond that because him getting, a I think it's like a $15 million raise, doesn't make things easier for them. To me, everything in Miami is sort of in flux until we see exactly how the Chris Bosh situation resolves itself. I just think they got caught with a lot of different things going on and it is regarding keeping uh, Tyler Johnson, I think it was, I, I would suspect that it's not quite as, I don't know if they're looking three years ahead at this point, although I'm sure to some degree they are. I, I think they sort of have to still wrap their heads around and let the boss situation play out and then see. But man, they should be an interesting team as well, you know, with how it all plays out. Are you guys ready to move on to the season preview part? I think we'll move quickly on this. Yeah. You want to rank these teams one to five? Yeah, let's go with, uh, I think Charlotte is the best team. I'm going to put the Wizards second. I'll put Atlanta third, Orlando fourth, and then Miami fifth. And I guess that's where I'll go on that. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm similar. I think I would go with, yeah, I think Charlotte won. I think Washington maybe won too, but um, Charlotte won, Washington two, Atlanta three, Orlando four, Miami five, but I could easily see Miami be like I could see things not working out in Orlando, so I'm not as optimistic as Mike is um, about their moves. But oh, I don't like their moves. I just think yeah. they they are a better team. Yeah, they, they, have, they as, have a lot of talent. I mean, Miami's so dependent on two guys and yeah. two guys that haven't really proven it much over the course of their careers. If Miami also starts off poorly, are they going to pack it in because they have so many draft picks they owe in the future? And yes. they may need to keep this one. You have to kind of price that in as well. And, and it's easy yeah, for absolutely. them to tank because they only have two dudes. You know, like all they have to do is just say, oh, Goran Dragic, you know, take a little bit of a rest. And then they're, you know, a 25 win pace team like that. That's really what it all it'll take for them. And I trust Bo as a coach, but he has enough security. Like when you think about teams that can tank, you generally look for teams that have enough stability and security that it's OK. And the Heat are absolutely there. I agree. I agree. And I think as far as how many of them make the playoffs, I think we're probably still talking about the top three teams. I think the Hornets, I don't know that any of them will be top four teams in the East. Uh, I I like the Pistons as the fourth team, along with the the Cavs, Celtics, and, and uh, Raptors. But 
I think the Hornets, Hawks, and Wizards all have right to expect to make the playoffs, unlike, say, the Knicks. So. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go through my... I forgot to do my own 1-5. to five. It's the same as Adi, so Charlotte, then Washington, then Atlanta, and that's the closest decision for me is those two. Washington, Atlanta, then Orlando, then Miami, and there are three teams in this division that seem playoff caliber, and that's why I'm going to say two is that it feels to me like it's more likely that one of those teams falls out, likely due to injury, than that Orlando jumps in. Both things are possible, but if I had to go one way or the other, that's the way I'd go. I picked the Wizards to make the Eastern Conference Finals last year, so you don't have to tell me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I may have done that as well. So we'll see. Uh, I, I would think that if one of these teams drop out, like Orlando is poised to jump in, right? I mean, who? Are, do you, I like their chances better than uh, Milwaukee or the Knicks or Chicago. I like the Milwaukee chances. I like I like the Bucks. I think they're they're bound for a rebound year. Even without Chris Middleton, I don't know. I would have said that before Chris Middleton got hurt. I, I love Chris Middleton. I really do. But I just expect a lot from Jabari. And I don't know that everyone everyone does. Jabari was really good in the second half. Really good. He was. And they'll they'll probably figure out their center rotation better than they did at the beginning of last year. You know, just working with better fits. You know, Henson, maybe Plumlee, depending. I mean, those, those guys are probably overpaid, but at least they fit in with what they're going to do. But there is this weird dynamic in the East where the teams that are on the fringe right now you kind of lean more negative than positive. In the West, it might be the opposite, where there are some teams with upside potential, and it's just who's going to realize it. In the East, it's it might end up being that they're all about the same, and it's whoever survives. Yeah, that's the Knicks' hope. Yeah, it is. So so are you guys both on three, then? You guys are on three, and I'm on two? Uh, Yeah, I, I just don't know what to do with the Hawks. Like, I think they could go in one of two directions. And I, I just have no sense of uh, no feel for what they could possibly be. So I like to. I think Orlando is a playoff team, but I I can't pick them right now to beat out the Hawks because I just don't know what the Hawks are going to be. It's too confusing. And I think if the Magic make it, it's probably because a team like Washington or Atlanta slips. Yeah, and it, it also it also helps that there are two teams in this in this conference that absolutely aren't going to make the playoffs. So that does open it up a little bit. How many teams have more? Or maybe even the words actually less. It would it would just be confounding and kind of heartbreaking for the Wizards to miss the playoffs again this year because they can't do anything. Yeah, I mean this is a humongous year for this. Yeah, team. And, but in a way it's, it's not because nothing will change for next season. So it's really just this weird well, situation where, like, how much can they really do if? They don't. I mean, they could trade well, players is, at one other market, but they're not yeah. firing Scott Brooks. Ernie Grunfeld eventually may need to go. I mean, well, yeah. we've been saying that for a long time. So, yeah, I mean, they they've boxed themselves in. I mean, that's they, they build all their put all their eggs in the 2016 basket, and it didn't work out for them. So this is kind of where they're at. Uh, this is their team, and I believe Danny, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe they will not have the capability of negotiating an extension and extending John Wall throughout the duration of his contract. So because yeah, he's of not happy, about, he's not happy about that Yeah, Under the current CBA and all expectations are that they won't change this because it'd be such a huge deal. You have to have cap space to do that and they aren't going to have cap space. Yeah. So I think that's a fairly interesting subplot to where they are. And they have to hope that they can get more out of guys like Markeith Morris and Otto Porter and, Gone on an upward trajectory there because, I mean, it is true that two years ago they were an injury probably away from the conference finals and being in the conversation. They have some better players in some better spots than they did then. I mean, they have 
I mean, if Markeith Morris can play like he did in the second half, he's probably a more dynamic player than Nene turned into. And they still, Paul Pierce was on sort of his last legs, and Otto Porter should get better, hopefully. And we'll see what they get out of Thomas Sodoransky, and maybe Andrew Nicholson helps them. And they have, I would say, Mahim, they have better backups with uh, if Mahimi stays healthy, especially in the front court. But it just comes down to those two star players and like, have they kind of dismissed their window? And if, if they don't, it's not just that they can have to make the playoffs this year. If they don't, I think, get to the second round, where exactly are they going? And this is a, I think a tremendously huge year for them to get, they have to at least get back, I think to the level they were at two years ago to really justify kind of this whole plan of building to the 2016 year. So yeah, it's going to be tricky to see. I mean, I think on talent alone, they sort of have, the best talent in the uh, division. It's just that they we don't know how the talent is going to fit together, and it's kind of clustered in certain ways. Whereas Charlotte, I think, is a lot more balanced, and you kind of know what you're going to get from them. Much better coach. It's a big year for them. There's no question about it, and, and there is sort of, I agree, a little bit of a sense of futility that like they're kind of capped out with the team that is probably in the mid mid forties at best. But you know, they could make a trade. There are other avenues to improve the team other than free agency, so we'll see. But yeah, it, when you put it that way, it is a little depressing. I have a proposal. If both of their teams disappoint again this year, the league has to figure out a way to get John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins on the same team. I don't really <laughs> care how it happens, but I think they both deserve to be a little bit happier than they've been. And so however, whether it means trading them both to the same team, whatever happens, I think that they just deserve that. Yeah, I like Mike's pathos there, though. That was pretty... Like, I got a little emotional. I mean... <laughs> Goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay, so we'll we'll end this on a little bit more of a positive note, which is what players do you guys think are going to break out? That doesn't have to be becoming stars because that might be hard in this division, but just players who will be more prominent in whatever way than they were before. Justice Winslow is one guy I look at. I'm really excited to watch him play this year and get a little bit more responsibility. I think that's one. I I think Bradley Beal is going to have a good year. I'm feeling fairly confident about that. Uh, I actually think Dennis Schroeder is going to put up big numbers. I'm not sure if he'll still be consistent enough, but I'm excited for him. I think it's hard not to get excited about Aaron Gordon, even though he's out of position uh, on that team. And I'll let Adi talk about Kid Gilchrist, because I think he's probably the other one. You stole all the easy ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, I will second no, I won't second all them, but I'll, I'll just throw in... One guy who I think did kind of until until free agency got people a little excited about him. I think Evan Fournier's offensive ability has been kind of under discussed. I loved him in Denver. I really did. Uh, I thought he had so much offensive potential. He has such a smooth style of playing the game. So I'm gonna use this space to just talk about Evan Fournier, who might be the Magic's, who is the Magic's uh, most obviously ready to contribute offensive player on their roster and I think he has the potential to be like a a 22 points per game guy Uh, he doesn't contribute much on defense or anything on defense but he's he's a skilled ball handler who can create his own shot on a team where no one else can shoot and he also doubles as their best shooter so you know it's a it's a good situation for Evan Fournier I think we're going to see see some things out of him and if Mario Hazonia is ready to be to, to join him there, then they might have enough offensive firepower to really do something. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm contractually obligated to mention Hazonia, considering I'm the Archbishop of the Church of Hazonia and the sponsor of his basketball reference page. But the other guy for me, beyond all the players you suggested, I will echo pretty much all of them, including MKG, who we alluded to but didn't talk about explicitly. The other guy is Bismack Biombo, And Biombo is overrated by certain people, but he can be a major difference maker defensively, and that is the most important thing a center can do. He's done some really nice things in the preseason. There was this moment in their last game where Biombo and Ibaka blocked, I think it was shots three times, three possessions in a row. And they will do those sorts of things. And he could be, you know, one of the key defensive players behind. I think Mike said they could be a top 10 defense. They could be a top five defense, depending on who they actually play this year. And Biombo could be a big part of that. And having him play fewer minutes, let's say it's more in the 24 range than 28 to 30 could be a really good thing for him in terms of aggressiveness and more replicating the role that he had in Toronto when at, at various moments in time, and that could be a good thing for him. Anything else you guys think think needs to be a part of this conversation? No, I just hope that the Wizards make the playoffs for Mike Prada's sanity and for really every Wizards fan's sanity that I know, because I have a lot of Wizards fan friends who they, they know the truth is there's that ceiling, and, and there's that this this team isn't improving that much if they don't win now. So, I think the Wizards will be a good team. I, I really do think that they'll challenge the Hornets for the division. I'm looking forward to watching this division up close, even if it's the worst in the NBA or one of them. I've been very encouraged by what I've seen from John Wall in preseason so far. He looks like he has his bounce back. He looks a lot more active. He's coming off two knee surgeries after a year where he put up pretty big numbers but I think some of the activity and his defense really slipped and you know there were a lot of problems with that team last year but I thought he didn't really grab the bull by the horns and lead them to where they needed to be led like he did two years ago where I thought he was incredible I am encouraged so far if he can keep that play up then he is the second best player in the conference but we will see if he can because that's sort of Again, there's Beal's improvement, there's Otto's improvement, there's all that. But if John Wall is a top 10 level player, like I think he was two years ago, then they can go places. And that's it's going to be fun to watch to see if he can do that uh, under Scott Brooks. There is this part of me that just sees that elite player in John Wall and just waiting for it to come out. And sometimes it takes a while with point guards. You know, it, it really can do that. And he came into the league pretty young. And so if he can go to that level where he's the second best player in the conference, it would be a great thing for basketball, and it would be a great thing for basketball in D.C. And it's kind of now or never either, as well. You know, he's been around a while. Like, it's got to happen now. Yeah. D.C. needs a win, too. And if it hasn't, also with Wall, if it hasn't happened by this point, let's say that by the end of by June, then it's unlikely to, to happen at all, just because he'll, he'll have been in the league. This is his seventh year? Sixth year? Sixth year, I believe. He Sixth is... Year. So, I mean, and, at that and we'll point, see how that, that whole thing with Bradley Beal works out. I think that's a thing to watch, whether how well they get along, because I think there are some, some issues there. Yeah, there, there's, there's certainly are some stuff. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for taking time. Always good to talk to you. Yep, thanks hey, thanks for, for having, having us. Thanks again to Mike and Adi for taking the time to come on. You can read Mike Prada at SB Nation, and he is also the editor of SB Nation's MBA section. You should follow him on Twitter at Mike Prada SBN. That's M I K E. P-R-A-D-A-S-B-N. You can read Adi Joseph at The Sporting News, where he is also the deputy editor, and you can follow him on Twitter at Adi Joseph. That's A-D-I-J-O-S-E-P-H. Love talking with both of them, and 
listening, kind of preparing for the Southeast did give me a, a kind of a greater understanding and appreciation for the strangeness of this division. And while there was a little bit of a malaise in the podcast because, you know, none of the teams really pop, I do expect somebody to stand out during the course of the year. Don't know exactly who it's going to be. But I fully expect that to happen. So it is kind of fun when you have a bunch of teams that are about even at the beginning of the season. So you just have to see how that turns out in the end. And so I am excited for that. And of course, excited for the whole season. So this is going to be a great year. Lots going on for for me and for everything else. And so definitely keep an eye on Real Jam Radio. For those of you that have listened for the last few years, I do not do a ton of, let's call it, instant reaction, you know, like right when the season starts, because I feel like sometimes that leads to some of the more, you know, lazier, fraught narratives out there, and so I try to give it a little bit of time and do some stuff that's less time-sensitive and a little bit more evergreen for a week or two, and I already have one of those lined up. Probably I'm going to have a second, depending on if I can get a guest lined up, and so that'll be really, really fun. And then get into analysis after that, and usually where I start is with some of the most interesting team stories. So like if there's a team that's the story of the first two weeks, then I'll talk to somebody who is a, you know, who is involved in that team. And so fortunately now, I have contacts throughout the league, so hopefully I can get somebody on for that, and then we'll get the ball rolling from there. But Real Jam Radio will be going on strong, and I am so appreciative of everybody's support. You should definitely check out because now that we're in the CLNS family, you should check out the CLNS radio app. I have a lot of great other programming that you can check out there, and it's also another way that you can listen to Real GM Radio. If you want to support the show, you should definitely subscribe, download every episode, and leave a rating and a review in whatever podcast player you use. It's awesome if it's iTunes because it's still a central figure in our business, but if it's something else, I appreciate that just as well. So whatever you really have works there. And another great way you can support the show and do something that I think you'll enjoy yourself is checking out Audible. You can go to audible.com slash try now. You get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook. It's a great service. I'm so happy that it exists because it's a a value add in a field where there is a lot of, you know, a lot of options. And so I think that having that out there is great. And I am a big fan of their product. So so happy to have them as as a sponsor of the show. So... If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, and different, you can reach out to me at Danny LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or DannyLaRueNBA at gmail.com. That is something people are using more now, which is a good thing. I mean, because you can do a lot more in that than you can in 140 characters. So, And it's, it's more permanent. So, you know, like with Twitter, every once in a while, if you get a barrage of anything, you can miss it. But with email, you don't really. So that is one thing to do if there's something that you really want me to get to get on. And the standard promise for me on this is I read everything. I respond when I can, because I have a lot of things to catch up on. And that is among them. I think I have something like 30 emails. I still need to get back, but I've read them all and I've appreciated them for what they are. So thank you so much for listening. Take care. Enjoy the start of this fun season and make it a great day.